You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D, the podcast that explores the power of inclusion and why disability is an important part of the workplace diversity and inclusion conversation. Produced by the Ontario Disability Employment Network, with your hosts, Jeanette Campbell and Dean Askin. Hello there. Here's a statistic for you. 1.3 billion. That's the number of people globally who have a disability, according to World Health Organization figures. It's the world's largest minority group that all of us will likely join at some point in our everyday lives. People who have a disability are just living their everyday lives one day at a time, like all of us, celebrating triumphs in life and coping with life stresses, just like all of us. But that's not necessarily the message that comes across in media stories about disability. Hi, I'm Jeanette Campbell, and welcome to this episode of You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D. Myths and misconceptions about disability are still prevalent, and journalists and the media play a critical role in how people who have a disability, and even how disability itself is perceived, and the level of disability awareness among the general population. So on this episode of You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D, well, that's what we're exploring in this first of two parts on disability in the media. Hi there, I'm Dean Askin at The Other Mike, and for this conversation, we're joined by Beth Haller, John Lepke, and Gus Alexiou. So Beth teaches disability studies and media studies at Towson University in Maryland. She's also an adjunct professor in disability studies at York University in Toronto, City University of New York, and the University of Texas at Arlington. And Beth is also on the advisory board of the National Center on Disability and Journalism. That's at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication at Arizona State University. John Lepke is a Canadian disabled artist, freelance journalist, editor, and former parasport national team athlete. Journalistically, he writes about disability, health, sport, and the media. He's based in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. And joining us from the UK, where it's getting into the evening now, is Gus Alexiou. He's also a freelance journalist who has a disability. He writes a regular column on disability issues for Forbes magazine in New York. Beth, John, and Gus, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. I want to throw it out there. We kind of touched on it in, in in the intro and said, you know, perceptions may not necessarily be the same in the media. But I want to know, what do you think, what's the biggest thing that's right with disability representation and coverage in the mainstream media? Things are a little bit better in the news for in America for the news for not a great reason. America's traditional journalism started collapsing around 2001. And I think by 2008, there was 26% less journalists in America than there was in the previous years. So downsizing newspapers and online publications and broadcast cutting back has led to this vacuum that disabled journalists are able to fill and disabled writers are able to fill I mean, I never could have predicted this, having worked before the internet existed, um, having been a print journalist back in the 80s. Um, but I feel like things have been made, there's been made space now for disabled journalists and a little bit better coverage of um, disability issues in the news. I'm not saying it's great yet, but but I really think um, 
kind of the collapse of some of the traditional journalism in the U.S. has led to a lot of newsrooms saying, oh, we have somebody that can write an op-ed about disability and they have a disability. Great. You know, and also online space is much more flexible than the old print space was. I, mean, I never thought I'd see the day that Teen Vogue in America, their online magazine is covering some of the, doing some of the best disability coverage in America and mostly disabled writers um, writing for them. John, over to you, what do, what, do, what do you think? There seems to be a large disparity between what staff coverage looks like and what freelance coverage looks like. And I'm reminded, not to quote myself, but of what another disabled journalist, Dev Ramswak, said to me for an insider piece, which is, we work for ourselves because it's the only way we can survive. And so I see a lot of disabled journalists being freelancers because they don't see a space for themselves in those mainstream newsrooms. I think, and Beth could speak to this better than me, not to not to put you on the on uh, the hot hot seat, Beth. But I think disability coverage, and and I say this as a cis straight white man, so take this with all the grain of salt or pound of salt that is needed. However, I think the momentum that we're seeing around things like the Trans Journalists Association, um, uh, uh, the Asian Journalists Association. Um, I may be messing up their acronym there, but the, the power that we've seen in these organizations, including the NCDJ, to high tide racing all boats, um, you know, whether that's the NCDJ guidelines or just the fact that these conversations are happening and that we have people like, and this is where we start name dropping friends, I guess, but, um, you know, we have people like Emily Watkins at Public Radio in Buffalo. We have people like Julia Metro doing a grad degree at uh, at Berkeley. We have Kara Reedy um, trying to get a, a, a disability uh, journalist association started. We have these efforts and, and they're they're in many ways cross-cultural and interdisciplinary and uh, intersectional in the ways that they they tackle disability. That's that's where my hope is. I mean, we see folks, you know, longstanding folks like Wendy Liu um, doing disability newsroom training. We see uh, Beth mentioned Teen Vogue, Alice Wong, uh, Disability Disability Project just coming on as a columnist there. So I see the progress there. What I'm not sure that I see the progress in is where people feel safe identifying in mainstream newsrooms, at least on this side of the pond. Um, I I think we're way behind even places like the BBC. I think we're seeing more journalists identify as disabled or using person first language, if that's you know what they're comfortable with. Um, but I'm still, I think we're at the growing pains stage of disabled folks in journalism because of um, some of the conflicts that can arise when disabled journalists think that they can report on all of disability simply because they have a disability. Well, well let's, let's, I mean, you mentioned, you know, you were wondering what the UK perspective is. Let's bring Gus into this conversation and, 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 and find out. Gus, we know, what do you think is, is happening that's right over there in the UK? Well, I would I would say in the UK perspective, um, in terms of recent disability history, the actual changing moment wasn't um, well, certainly wasn't the 1995 uh, Disability Discrimination Act, which is the equivalent of your of the ADA over in the United States. Um, and it wasn't even the 2010 Equality Act, but it seems to have been the 2012 Paralympics in terms of the UK population, at least, who gave the disability movement a lot of visibility. And it wasn't simply just the, the, the events themselves, but the programming around that and the content around that. 
there's lots of work still to do. Um, I mean, in terms of comparing it to 20 years ago, um, disability is much more on the radar um, of major organizations or, or of, of, of broadcast journalism and indeed writing journalism organizations than it was, was 20 years ago. And I, I agree with what Beth said as well, that the the, the kind of online space, and I guess this, this, this applies to, to any territory, has made journalism much more agile. There is now just room for kind of disability columns, specific initiatives, um, even even like the, the Forbes Contributor Network that I write on, where you can have specific disabled journalists specialising in disability. But indeed, in the mainstream media over here, BBC, The Guardian, they have their own disability page, which obviously wasn't happening before when, in, the days of, um, in the days of paper journalism. So technology has and indeed people's perceptions has opened up the space a lot more i think but there, there, there's a lot of work still to do um even though progress is being made so building on some of that you know it's interesting you're talking about uh mainstream newsrooms and and how people feel that their that their spaces in those in those places you're talking about some of the efforts that are that you've seen and some of the changes and even some of the things that have influenced that. So when you when you think about um, you know the newsrooms and and journalists, producers, editors that are working behind the scenes, what do you think the level of disability awareness is, and how much does that level of knowledge translate when a disability story is airing, or when it's being pitched, or or promoted? And well, I, I, we're asking anybody here, Gus. Well, I, I would say from my 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 perception, it is remains very inconsistent and patchy. Um, there are pockets of good practice, but it often seems to be based on somebody having or if we're talking about someone at an editorial decision making level having a lived experience of disability or having a reference point to go on and if they don't you don't get the you don't get the good practice so i think that that's one of the that's one of the one of the issues obviously certain organizations do come in and insist on having a top down dei program that then permeates through and that can make a difference that can be a way of forcing thing, th things through but yeah i i think it very much kind of tends to depend on people's lived experience. I think for some editors, it's not on the radar um, at all necessarily. And I think this speaks to a wider problem, I think, within disability and journalism in that it's all very well having more opportunities for disabled journalists. And I agree with what John said about the, the opportunities within freelancing. And again, new technology, to a certain extent, the pandemic as well has increased opportunities for freelancing. You know, there's never a better time uh, to be working from home. And uh, freelancing that does work quite well. It has some downsides as well, but it, do, it does work well for journalists with certain types of disabilities. But actually, until we have people in those editorial decision-making capacities with disabilities calling the shots, we're not really going to get enough of a cut through, I don't think. Um, so it needs to come, it needs to work its way through the grassroots higher up the chain, in, in, in my opinion. Otherwise, we're just not, we're not going to get the whole picture. In addition to have these um news directors and editors finally get it that they should be covering disability issues having high profile you know big name newsrooms like the washington post and the new york times finally um say that disability coverage is important at least by dedicating someone to it and then allowing that person to say what they want to say because <laughs> i know amanda morris has done more than just disability related stories and there, you know, now there's a lot more personal 
kind of blogging style articles that are written. And so you get to know the person a little bit more personally um, in their own journey and they're on social media. So I think that's fantastic, but we just need more. And there's still an accessibility issue in journalism too. I mean, I've been fighting with the New York Times for a couple of years unsuccessfully because they're starting to do these. I still get the paper New York Times and they do these, they're beautiful for those of us who are sighted, but they're full page, like graphic novel cartoon style journalism, really interesting, beautiful kind of way to do it. Completely inaccessible to someone that uses screen reader. Beth and Gus, you both sort of raised um, some things that sort of lead into this next question. And John, I'm going to actually start with you sure. with this one. So Gus, right, you right. talked about, you talked about, you know, um, when we when I asked about the level of knowledge and and things like that, and, and we're still talking about sort of what are the things that need to happen, he mentioned that there's there's better representation, and I think Beth, you talked about you know that you're seeing things like major publications are dedicating staff, um, but you're raising things like accessibility is is still an issue. So this next question is really about what what you think needs to to change the most in the journalism field and is it is it attitudes is it awareness is it people's knowledge around language or etiquette is it more inclusive hiring is it all of those things so john i'll i'll start i'll, I'll ask you first uh yes um, no, <laughs> that's a great answer, John. Beyond beyond that, I think the elephant in the room that I'm going to point and laugh at perhaps is that our training systems for disabled journalists are broken. And that might sound like a complete hot take. And the other two folks on this call can definitely disagree with me if they like. But I did not go to J school. I did not go to J school in Canada because I knew that if I went, I would be told, oh, you can't report on your community. You're you're just biased in the same way that black journalists get told, that BIPOC journalists in general get told about their communities. Um, LGBTQ plus journalists certainly get this leveled at them as well. Um, so I did it the, uh, the pain in the ass way, which is uh, running the student newsroom and uh, not giving up on writing. I say the system is broken um, because so many disabled journalists that I know they are forced to sell their trauma. That is what is expected of a disabled reporter a lot of the time. And I've done it. I'm not ashamed of the work that I did. And it has value, I think. I think maybe I wouldn't have come out as mentally ill on CBC radio, but that was my choice. So, you know, live and learn. I find that there are a lot of disabled journalists who get stuck in this cycle of op-ed, 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 and they never act truly learn how to report. They never get trusted to report. They bump into some, you know, uh, some um, uh, garbage around what is expected of them to exist in a newsroom. And I also want to flag, you know, Gus, uh, you brought up that it's easier for for freelance is a good opportunity. You know, I'm thinking I haven't talked to her about this, but, you know, folks like Lucy Webster, who BBC journalists now freelance running your own newsletter stuff like that i think the other thing that often doesn't get brought up in this discussion and maybe i'm you know being a little too further afield is that uh the nhs may be broken the canadian healthcare may be broken but my healthcare is not connected to my job um i think that's the one divide that i see between disabled journalists here and disabled journalists uh in the us is that 
there's a hell of a lot more calculus. And so if we want disabled journalists to succeed, we need to, the fellowship is great, as Beth said at the times, um, uh, Amanda moving into that gig at Washington Post, the Washington Post hiring an accessible en accessibility engineer, which admittedly I wrote about, um, the Times uh, hiring a, uh, don't quote me on the job title, but um, visual editor dedicated towards accessibility. These are movements forward, but we're at the, if, if the issues with disability representation in media are a game of whack-a-mole, we've got a heck of a lot, we've got a heck of a lot to hammer down. And I can I can see Beth, um, you know, very energetically uh, <laughs> agreeing. Beth, did you Beth, and then and then Gus after that, uh, did you have anything that you wanted to add? I was always incorporating when I taught journalism skills classes in the early days, from the '90s to the mid 2000s, until I started teaching other things. Um, you know, I was always incorporating disability content into my journalism classes. So I would bring in speakers from you know, a mental health group or, you know, I once had, I don't know if you remember this documentary that won the Academy Award back in 2001 or 2000 called King Gimp. He was actually one of my students. So before they won the Academy Award and they were free to get to talk to my class and he has significant cerebral palsy and it's a story about his life as an artist. Anyway, um, he and the director came and spoke to my class. And so, you know, that kind of experience that I don't think a lot of other journalism faculty even get it sounds like you're talking about like that that awareness raising piece in right. the right and and as as one of the things that really really needs to happen and that's a really solid example for people who are listening to this or reviewing this in any way um these are these are some of these these things that need that you're you're talking about some promising right. what we Thank call you. promising practice in canada anyways Get that tragedy model out of people's head, which mm -hmm. that is, I think, the biggest, after doing this for 30 years, I think that is the biggest challenge we have is this tragedy trope that is in everybody's head when they meet somebody with a disability. There's this tragic narrative embedded in the brains of people in Western culture that we really have to figure out a way to break through. Um, so... Yeah, Gus, how are we going to solve it? Oh, that's a that, that's a big question. Well, I mean, going back to going going back to what we were saying about what disabled journalists want to be writing about, I, I very much agree with um, what what John was saying about this notion of selling trauma. Um, and I've certainly done it myself, um, unashamedly. Um, I have I I I live with MS, um, and MS is a young person's condition. It can it, it has a certain dramatic narrative attached to that. I found it was quite a useful way of, you know, kind of jumping the queue from writing for charity publications to actually writing for national newspapers because people wanted to hear. Editors wanted to hear it, so I I feel that editors do. Um, you know, uh, prick up their ears and see a synergy when a disabled journalist pitches a story about disability because they think, well, yeah, sure, you should be the one writing that. Um, I mean, I guess for myself, I'm in, I, I'm in a fortunate position in that I want to be writing those stories. And I do feel that disability does touch on virtually every aspect of life and ev everything has a disability lens through it. So you can be writing about disability, but at the same time, you can be writing about politics, arts, culture, sport, even everything, technology, absolutely everything. So I think all the opportunities are there. I, 
I guess it would be harder for, or, or, or certainly more frustrating for a disabled journalist who might quite rightly not want to write about disability at all. It happens to be a medical thing that's in their life, but actually they want to write about completely different subject to that. And I, I imagine it would be very frustrating being routed back towards, hey, well, how about you write about this this disability piece? It's not something that's happened to me personally, but um, I can certainly, I can certainly imagine it. Um, I think also we need to probably have more non-disabled journalists actually writing about disability too, to balance it out and to get a wider lens and to be more educative about what's going on. So I, I think it's very much kind of, you know, it's about what you want to write about. And certainly I would, I would encourage any journalist though, or, or any aspiring journalist with a disability, if it means getting a foot in the door, lean on it get in there because you know the opportunities can be there to get your name out there and actually then pitch more stories that aren't about disability related subjects but the most important thing is to write and to write about an authentic voice and of course we do we we, we do need people with lived experience um telling their stories but i mean i, I I'm, I'm in total agreement with john about you know we don't want that necessarily to transcend into trauma porn and you know just clickbait and 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 and, and this kind of thing so you know yeah we take a well round if, if i may jeanette please retort or, or whatever like gus and i are playing tennis i don't know uh, if you're any good at tennis uh gus i'm terrible even though i'm a lot we're allowed to have the ball bounce twice um <laughs> yeah I, I mean part of it is you've just described my business model which is pitch disabled stories and then go hi i'm a generalist i cover all of these other things too um what I do, and with some outlets, I've actually been bold enough to put it in my pitch, is just search the word disability on a website and actually see what comes back. And not just seeing like how many results come back, but also like the type of results that come back. For example, for one outlet that I have not written for, so but um, one that's, let's say, focused on geographical locations. I searched disability, and the only thing that came up was bad coverage of former quote unquote insane asylums. That was the entirety of their disability coverage. Great. Well, there's sort of, you know, all a hole the size of a London Underground tunnel, I think, in in that kind of approach to to disability coverage. And and I think the the journalist that I I feel most for, and this is going to sound this maybe sounds like I'm being uh you know, uh, pat pat on the head. I don't mean that in that way. I I think the space that disabled journalists like me, I'm an ambulatory wheelchair user, former parasport athlete. Like my diagnosis is Googleable. I'm not hiding it. My Twitter bio says crippled and creative. Is to make space for the journalists who are just coming to understand themselves as disabled, particularly, I don't want to speak over anybody's experience here, but journalists who are clear that they understand themselves as chronically ill, but they're not quite sure how they fit in, as best said, not just from a, hey, what are my protections at work? What are the employment law? Candidate doesn't, I mean, people can tell me whatever they want about the Accessible Canada Act. The CRTC doesn't have to come into our our media overarching organization doesn't have to come into compliance until 2030 or something ridiculous so like we need to build those spaces particularly in canadian media to understand that there are tons of disabled people in the newsroom even if 
there's about 10 that are out in Canadian mainstream newsroom. My, my joke in Canada is that if you get three of us together who are out and give us an hour, we could probably name everybody. Um, and that's just not healthy for a media ecosystem. Yeah, I want I want to keep this thread going a little bit. There's a you know, John, when you when you were talking about you know the training being broken, I want to get to that in a minute because you were taking me back to my own days at journalism school. But you know, you're talking about how you know you fellows who are the writers, you know, and you've got the lived experience, and you know it's it's important for you to be writing about you know and covering covering the topic. But is it still difficult to get disability stories? You know, when you pitch them, is it still difficult to get them accepted out there? I mean, there's no, in Canada anyway, there's no real disability beat. And I know, you know, when we're doing the media outreach on our National Disability Employment Awareness Month campaign, we you always have to tend to pitch the business aspect of a story because there's no disability beat. And, and, and stories get covered, you know, like you said earlier, you know, one time a year, once a month during October, during Endeam, and then it's you know, kind of off the face of the earth. I mean, is it difficult? Uh, that's a good question. Um, well, I'll start with that 90% of my clients are American. <laughs> uh, so that might be partially the nature of uh, the opportunities. I think we have a number of people who have different approaches to when disability gets covered. Um, I think we have a ton of people who have a wider skill set than just the disability beat. Um, Apologies for another name dropping <laughs> section, but Bailey Martins, uh, I already mentioned, Emily Fagan, uh, um, even folks like Justin McElroy, who who will write, uh, posted recently about being autistic and tends to write one article a year or so about being autistic. Um, I would agree that the employment aspect has been focused on. In Canada, and not to drag this too far towards Canada, apologies for, for my collaborators here, I think part of it is that the wider disability advocacy approach has trended towards work. I, I have the perception that in the US, the there's just a broader number of perspectives and it's not quite as chalked full as say, spinal cord injury, the former Canadian paraplegic association deciding to make their slogan work related and thus everything trends towards that way. Or the conversations that are currently being had about the Canadian disability benefit. I think because the wider Canadian society conversation is so focused on business, we end up having to make the economic argument about people's humanity. And I think that does shape coverage, but I'm not sure it shapes coverage on the reporter to reporter level. I was going to say, well, from my experience, I'm quite lucky at the moment in the writing I do for Forbes in that it's a it's a non-pitching model. So essentially the pitch for the specialist journalist is to pitch to the contributor network and then you effectively get editorial rights um, to the to the platform and, and, and you can write about what um, you, you can write about topics within your specialism or what they call swim lanes for forms, my being mine being disability. So I've actually had to been fortunate enough to come out of that kind of pitching universe but I, I certainly do have memories of, of of what it was like and trying to sell disability stories I mean I do remember pretty vividly my first article that I wrote for a newspaper over here in the UK the Times was an article actually about being young um, and being diagnosed with MS and I pitched it sort of for a few months um, this is about 10 years ago now um i pitched in the pitch was going for a few months this very very nice editor who was who, who was considering it, but but she wouldn't publish it until 
news the news actually happened to break that Ozzy Osbourne's son, Jack Osbourne, happened to be diagnosed with MS that day. And then she thought it was a viable time to publish it because it happened to affect some celebrity, which was which is great. And I understand that's the way the news works to a certain extent. Having said that, I was thinking to myself when I wrote that, well, do you know what? Yesterday, before that particular piece of news broke, this condition, which affects 100,000 young adults in the UK, is just as valid as it was because this one person has been diagnosed. But it wasn't until you know, a well-known celebrity or relatively well-known celebrity had the condition that the article got that the article got published and i did i do remember from my yeah from my days of when i would pitch into the national newspapers it did have to kind of be at the more sensational sensationalist end oh this person's life's been ruined by a, an acquired brain injury or, or some welfare disability welfare benefit scam it was never a kind of it's very hard to write incidental stories about disabled life and getting that kind of lens on that. Beth, I see you. I saw you nodding your head, and the disability stories just kind of hang in the wind until there is some newsworthy event that that they can be tied to. Yeah, I mean, I think that's always been the case. You had to have some kind of news peg. Social media has helped um, disabled writers and journalists. I mean, I know it's the devil for a lot of other people. But I can never see it as a devil because having lived in the pre-internet era, I mean, people were just silenced because they had no access except for like a letter to the editor in the old print days. Um, but now with social media, they can cause trends. They can have hashtag, you know, go viral. They can get the attention of non-disabled journalists who are like, this is a you know, big stories here, you know, so I think and they're getting interviewed over and over, too. I want to go back for a minute to, to something that, that John was saying a few minutes ago. I mean, does it all go back to the way young journalists, you know, are trained? I mean, John got me thinking about my days in journalism school, you know, I learned how to, you know, news write. I learned how to make a radio documentary, how to put a broadcast together. You had a typing course that you had to pass to get in second year to get your degree in your final year. And, you know, there was, you know, electives on economics and Canadian history, and you could take sociology. But there was nothing in the journalism program about disability studies. I mean, do we need, uh, you know, a, a mandatory elective in every journalism program on disability studies now? I was just going to say, I'd be interested to see. I mean, I haven't gone to formal journalism school and I very much went through the kind of self-training, freelancing, built portfolio building uh, route. But I'd be interested to see what other diversity segments, if indeed any, come into journalism school or how they're trained how they're trained at all I mean I would actually expand what you're saying to say that it's not just about journalism school I think there should be disability studies in school full stop in 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 all forms of education um disability is the largest minority segment 15 to 20 percent of the world's population has 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 a disability it can cut across it cuts across every other segment as well race gender economic situation and it's the, the diversity segment that, well, pretty much everyone in the world, if they live to a certain age, will enter at some point, and anyone can indeed enter in any split second, and yet it's consistently thought of as the poor cousin of other diversity movements. So I think it actually needs to be much lower down in the education school, uh, education chain and and through and, and through schools, um, because it's not there, it's not there either, and I think that would be the platform. Um, for journalistic education. Oh, I want to bring Beth in as the professor. What do you think about that, Beth? 
Do we, do we well, need it at, not just in journalism class. programs, but in every academic well, program? I've actually been teaching a class about media and disability since 2013 at Towson and since 2008, the grad program at City University of New York. Um, basically, when I teach a class, that's what it's about these days. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I get, you know, like at Towson is kind of interesting. We started our disability studies in the College of Health Professions, and we got some pushback from people like, why is it with all those people's training to be nurses and PTs and all that stuff? I said, they're the ones who need it. They're going to have like contact with disabled people and they don't even know anything about it. But we also made it an elective. So my mass communication students could take it as well. It's an interesting combo of students. Usually the mass comm students got it after one class. They're like, why are we taught, back to Gus's point, why were we taught about this in high school? Like they were upset that they'd been given some like diversity information in their high school, but disability was never mentioned. And then they have my class and they're like, what's going on? I mean, they're vis visibly angry about having missed out on knowing this because I think the younger generation with inclusion, you know, like they want everyone included and that includes their disabled friends and their disabled family members and that community they know should be part of diversity. This conversation is, is reaching into a lot of areas, but you're talking now, we're talking about the intersectionality, which is a conversation that at least up here in Canada seems to be picking up some momentum, but it's still this somewhat new concept in, in certain circles. I don't know, John, you, you know, you're, you're, you're here and with us north of the line. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, you might've noticed that I don't really know where intersectionality what the progress has been made there because it, in the UK because that's definitely uh, depending on on who you're speaking with it's a it's a bit of a brand new concept all of a sudden and it's uh, you know to I think Gus's point earlier like it's this is the largest minority population that we're talking about and at one point everybody is going to participate in one way or another in this community and and to leave it that that intersectionality but you're you're also touching on you know education and disability awareness and um where you know john i found it fascinating you were talking about that sort of the business slant and you know the every the, and it's true the dialogue in canada is very heavy on the business side um but there's very little going on in the education system and i i feel like we could probably we this is supposed to be a two-part series. I think it should be like a four-part series just with the three of you. Well, nothing like giving you more work to do, Jeanette. Well, always appreciate it, John. Thank you. Um, um, what I, do you I think, think about the, that? Yeah, I think I have about 47 things slowing together. <laughs> there are two There are two pieces that, that I think link into this, but they're a bit tangential, but I think you've gotten the sense that I'm tangential. <laughs> Don't want to label anybody else on this call, but shocking that three disabled people in a room uh, or three disabled guests start blabbering. Funny how that happens. I think as we see this growth in disability journalism, we need to be mindful that we actually need to be critical of the disabled journalists and their work from a community perspective. Now, I come at this from a parasport perspective, where nobody wants to speak ill of disabled Paralympians, even if they do crappy things. Parasport athletes. I was never a Paralympian. I went to a bunch of cool stuff, but never anything important. <laughs> that's that's how I describe my athletic career, and I'm sticking to it. Um, I've had disabled journalists steal my work. I've had disabled journalists write 
remarkably ahistorical op-eds that a non quite obviously a non-disabled editor read and went, that sounds right. We need to have media literacy. And the other unpopular, probably the hottest take you'll have all day is that I'm not speaking ill of disability community. This is not unique to disability community. My experience as a journalist is that disability community thinks they understand how journalism works much more than they do. And so they have this perception. And then the way that that floods in, and Beth would be interested in, and Gus and your thoughts on this, the way that can become really damaging is newsrooms do this thing where they go, right, let's get the community perspective. Let's go talk to disabled people who don't understand media. And then they get all of this feedback that they can't integrate because it's not how media works. They're like, well, you'll have a subsection that says, well, person first is the only thing. And then you'll have certain academic subset that will say, only identity first is okay. And then both will forget intellectually disabled and developmentally disabled people. And then the newsroom goes, we got three perspectives. What the hell do we do? It's like putting too many things on a wedding registry. Which one do I pick, right? And so I think we need to have disabled people in newsrooms. I think we need to have a wide perspective. And, and I think we need to have um, a, a wide spectrum of disabled journalists having this conversation. And I think we need to call people to account. I don't have the guts to be on this podcast and say who stole work from me, right? I'm not at that level. I also don't think it's productive to call them out on a podcast. However, I think we need to be really mindful. The second thing, and this links better to education, is we've talked a lot here uh, about being print journalists or online journalists primarily. I think the barriers, if you went and talked to, say, Dave Brown at AMI, uh, Accessible Media Inc., yeah, it's, it's really broken. Issues in radio uh, with equipment can can be a barrier. I don't want to speak for Dave, but I've interviewed him in the past about it. You know, Dave talking, uh, it was a piece for JSource about, you know, well, the only option I had was to memorize how the all the equipment worked, because that's about the only way I could make it accessible. I, <laughs> I had to memorize where the buttons might be. You know, um, I think... There's a lot more, I don't want to say a lot more because I haven't done TV. I think TV and radio have their own uh, their own barriers to debunk. And I think because the majority of journalists are doing the written word and especially disabled journalists, because uh, we write our email, our very good emails to survive within an ableist medical system, for example, that that's where a lot of the, the bias towards training goes. And so, I don't know what your second part is, but I'd be interested to hear what TV and radio and folks who are also battling that visible perception. Like I'm, if you Google me, I'm very obviously disabled. Unless I spasm and knock my webcam off and tell you about it, I don't look particularly disabled, except to another person with CP who's like, oh, he's got a lazy eye and that arm kind of spasms a bit, right? People who know what they're looking for. Yeah. And you know what, John, not to do any spoiler alerts, and I'm going to turn this over oh, to Dean, but, um, but yeah, so thanks. Thanks for that. Um, but that is sort of where we're going to be exploring next in that area of, of um also that mainstream media. So what does this look like? And, and, and you know what, I'm not going to steal Dean's thunder, actually, because I know he's going to mention this later. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop. Dean? All good. <laughs> well, that's a, John, sort of, that was a, some brilliant insight on, on, on where things are now. So where do you all see disability representation and coverage in the media going down the road, say, 5, 10, 15 20 years from now, or maybe even a year or two from now. Gus, do you want to pipe in for well, uh, the UK? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would say that 
it's hard to predict, isn't it? I mean, who would have predicted uh, the last how the last few years have gone? And 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 you can always get thrown these curveballs. But I mean, I think it's true to say that the whole industry is in a certain amount of flux. Um, we've got there's I think there's new platforms as well newish platforms new technologies there's certainly things like video blogging and youtube and tiktok which i think are going to change the game to a certain extent or are change continue to change the game to a certain extent and indeed give more access i know that's a kind of niche type of journalism but give create more opportunities i mean even the the, the entire industry though um is, is in flux if you think about you know, recent reports of what people have been saying with a uh, generative ai and things like chat gpt and actually all you journalists are going to be out of business uh, pretty soon because uh generative ai is going to change the game in terms of what people can search online so i think with any industry where there's a great deal of up and down and transition, there, there exists threats and opportunities for, for, for journalists with disabilities. And whether you latch onto an opportunity or become a victim of a threat, I suppose, depends on whether you can be at the vanguard of those changes or whether the changes kind of happen so fast that minority the minority population, disabled people in this case, simply become an afterthought to that and, and have to play catch up. So it's hard to make predictions i think in the, in the in the world we live in but i think those are those are some of the things john what about what about here in canada where do you, where do you see it going in canada i think we are at a point where we are starting to see more disabled journalists in newsrooms i still think going back to that previous point that we have far too many people who the newsroom structures do not allow people to be out and proud and i think one of the issues and I'm not speaking ill of our public again, but here we go. I think a lot of disability community expects reporters who are out as who are disabled to be out as disabled. I don't think they realize that there's a concrete risk. I mean, we see high profile journalists have to come out as disabled before they're ready and chronically ill. And I, I think the growth is going to be when people feel comfortable to say, I am disabled. I am trusted to go out and do these things. Um, and I think another growth will be uh, when, so if we take, for example, a music beat, I saw Faith Martin, who's a, a British music journalist, uh, uh, talk about this recently, about um, trying to cover music as a wheelchair user. And it, can I get into the venue? Can I get there? Um, you know, the non-Canadian, the mostly non-Canadian problem, but certainly the British problem, will the train run? Will the attendant show up, et cetera, et cetera, actually being an impact on beats that we don't often associate with disabled people, um, I would argue. Uh, Gus, I see you come off mute, so please correct me if I'm wrong. No, no, I was just going to mention, I was just ask you guys, really, about it back to you guys, with what you were saying about the pandemic. Do you think that the the kind of pandemic effect of the kind of idea of everyone becoming more comfortable uh, with the notion of working from home could actually work against newsroom accessibility in that disabled journalists kind of get hived off as, oh, well, you can just do it from home. You can be home workers. And therefore, it almost gives them the more, those newsrooms a way out to not be accessible. Hey, we don't have to make our building physically accessible or make this space um, inclusive because they can just do it from home. And that, so I think I think my personal view is that it could actually work against um, certain types of journalists as well. That again, it's, 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 it's both an opportunity and a threat um, at the same time. So I just wonder what you guys thought about that. Actually, I would disagree just because people, the newsrooms are already in 
probably accessible buildings just because that's a requirement in the US. If it's a public space, it has to be at least wheelchair accessible. Um, so I think you're ahead of work on more buildings in the UK. <laughs> yeah. And I know that, you know, like one of my relatives works for an oil company in Houston. And within a few months of the pandemic happening, everybody had been sent home to work from home. And he had like a three hour round trip commute because he lived way out in the suburbs. And then they said, oh, we've sold the building. We're going to get like space if you want to come in. So I think, you know, like a lot of people are in spaces that they don't actually own. So people are looking to, not people, just businesses and media or businesses here are looking to move into spaces that don't cost as much rent. So it's better if people are working hybrid from home, but then you get the people that want to be in a space. So I just think that a lot of the buildings where a newsroom would be would be um, accessible. Um, and America is going is very diverse. And I think maybe we'll finally think about intersectionality and include disability as well. I think it's a little bit on the radar because of YouTubers, because of people like John and Gus talking about these issues in their articles. I also see part of that future, Beth, being um, just to pick two names out of the hat, people who I'm not sure they would call themselves journalists, but are certainly writers and certainly thinking in that vein. I mean, she's trended further towards blogging and her own personal work, but um, somebody like Imani Barberin, uh, Crutches and Spice, or um, somebody like Ace Tilton Ratcliffe, who's written about grief and disability, and disability representation in, in science fiction. Um, I think what we're seeing is is an expansion. Let's let, let me let me quickly get some final thoughts. Ten sure. seconds from from each of Beth Beth and Beth and and, and Gus over there in the UK. Yeah, I well, think uh, sorry, not rosy, but it's it's going in the right direction toward better progress. So since I've been doing this since the 1989, <laughs> and even back in the 80s, I was covering disability a bit as a print journalist. So I see how bad things used to be. And not, not that I think things are, like I said before, not great now, but I do think we're headed toward progress and the technology is helping. People now have access to get their voice out there and all these different platforms using smartphones and iPads and their computers and everything and all the different channels. So it's almost like we have too much information, but I think the stuff mm -hmm. that will get noticed is still gonna get noticed and we'll get more disability content out there gradually. And Gus, one one last quick comment from you. What's your, yeah, what's your I mean, I, I I was going to zoom the camera even further out um, than we've been than we've been already because we've talked about journalism school and indeed regular regular high school and stuff like that. I would say that you know the media and journalism is a reflection of the society we live in, and nothing's going to change or nothing's going to change fast enough unless the way kids are actually brought up to understand non-disabled kids. I'm saying in non-disabled families, the way they're brought up to understand disability changes as well. So, you know, just finding that middle ground between the two extremes that you often get at the moment, which is when, you know, a mother's walking with her child down the road and a wheelchair user comes the other way, kind of pinning them back against, the, pulling them back against the one almost looking away and recoiling from that, or the other extreme of kind of, and I've, I, I've experienced this as somebody who's had both visible and non-visible disabilities and, and been a non-disabled person at certain other parts of my life of the fact that certain members of the public think disability is almost a free-for-all and you can go up 
to a disabled person and say almost anything until we actually find a pathway between those two extremes in society where we just have a more of a normalization of disability i think the media is always going to be kind of rowing against the tide i really just want to say thank you so much for sharing these perspectives with us and for uh unpacking and opening a whole new conversation that needs to continue. So that was Beth Haller, John Lepke, and Gus Alexio. You know, I know that we touched on this a little bit when Dean was doing uh, the introduction to this conversation, but John, I, I just want to, if you don't mind, you said you didn't want to quote yourself, but uh, I'd like to quote you. And this was in the <laughs> oh, in the no. closing of a, of a CBC piece that you'd done. Oh, you wrote, okay. you wrote, ask me what I bring to the world, not what you assume I'm struggling with. Be mindful of how you consume messages about disabled people. Call us heroes, heroes or zeros for the right reasons and begin to see us as more than caricatures. And I think that you know with those meaningful and strong words we're at the end of this episode of you can't spell inclusion without a d i'm jeanette campbell and i hope that you will join us for part two of the series on disability in the media that wraps up our 2023 podcast season that's right jeanette this show we've had a great exploration of how disability is covered by and in the media and by the way beth john and gus thanks much again from me as well for sharing all those great insights on that in part two of the series, we'll be looking at disability representation in the media, more specifically in the film, television, and modeling industry in this country. We'll be talking with two Canadian actors who have a disability and the owner of a unique talent agency focused solely on representing disability talent. Join us for that conversation coming later this month. I'm Dean Askin. Thanks again for listening wherever, whenever, and on whatever podcast app you're listening from. Join us each episode as we have insightful conversations, much, 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 much like this one about disability in the media and explore disability inclusion in business and in our communities from all the angles. You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D is produced in Toronto, Canada by the Ontario Disability Employment Network. All rights reserved. Our podcast production team, Executive producer and host, Jeanette Campbell. Producer, Sue Defoe. Associate producer and host, Dean Askin. Audio editing and production by Dean Askin. Our podcast theme is Last Summer by Ixon. If you have feedback or comments about an episode, contact us at info at odinnetwork.com. That's info at O-D-E-N-E-T-W-O-R-K.com. Join us each episode for insights from expert guests as we explore the power of inclusion the business benefits of inclusive hiring, and why disability is an important part of the diversity, equity, and inclusion conversation. Listen to You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D on Podbean or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.